0: There was no verdict on Wednesday in the Larry Householder corruption trial. We could speculate all we want about why that is, but anybody that's covered courts know there is no figuring out what is going on in the jury room. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi, and we have other news to talk about. Once the verdict's in, our next episode will focus on it. Let us begin. How many more East Cleveland police officers were indicted Wednesday? What for and what percentage of that police department now is under indictment, Lisa?
1: Yeah. Cuyahoga County grand jury handed up indictments for 11 current and former East Cleveland police officers. That's in addition to the charges against eight other officers and the chief Scott Gardner late last year. So the total is 20. That is half of their police force, which is normally 40 officers. So they were uh, accused of several crimes interfering with civil rights, felonious assault, dereliction of duty, obstruction of justice and records tampering. And the jury got to see several videos that were taken, you know, during arrests of East Cleveland residents, showing them being punched and kicked and tased and and pushed to the ground. So it was pretty gruesome. So uh, there were four officers, Kyle Wood, Daniel Toomer, Brian Stahl and Tyler Munson, who are currently on leave from the department, but they were also implicated last year on different allegations. Two of the officers, Lorice Manns and Nicholas Foti, are no longer with the police department. One of them, Tristan Homan, moved to Illyria PD, but reports say that he was fired by that department yesterday after the indictments became public. And then there are four officers still with the department, Sergeant John Hartman, Brian Parks, Trey DeHart Robinson, and Ian McInnes. So the city of East Cleveland actually had to get assistance from the county sheriff's deputies to patrol their city because they just don't have enough officers now.
0: It's beyond words that a police department could be this rogue. And the sad thing was, we knew it. I'm very proud of the work that our team did in laying out what cowboys these police officers were and all of their reckless chases. And a project we ran about a year and a half ago I just don't understand how there is no external force that can shut this police department down. They are not fit to police. Half the department is in criminal indictment. These are bad police officers, and they have the ability to arrest people, to to beat people, lie about it. It's It's a shock what has gone on under the power of the badge. Where is the Ohio legislature on this? Why don't they create some system by which you can decertify a police department.
1: Well, and Chris, you were saying before we started recording is that, you know, we are still without a U.S. attorney for this district of Ohio and that this case probably should have been a federal case. Yeah,
0: I feel bad for the prosecutor, Michael O'Malley, because the feds keep doing investigations like this and then The feds won't prosecute it. So Mike O'Malley is left with, well, somebody needs to prosecute it. Crimes occurred here. But this should have been a civil rights case. These officers are violating the civil rights of countless people. And we talk about it all the time. If a cop pulls up behind you in East Cleveland, should you stop? Because look what they do to you. I mean, is it better to get charged with fleeing then getting stomped and beaten and, and locked up for, for God knows how long. This is a bad police department. It doesn't matter what you try to do at this point. They should not have the power of the badge. We are going to be looking at what is going on with the U.S. Attorney's Office. Why aren't they doing their job? Mike O'Malley also prosecuted a big federal Bitcoin investigation. That's not the county prosecutor's job, and he's stepping up to do what they won't. What's going on there? Outrage galore. It's today in Ohio. How does Cleveland contend it has suffered damages in the lawsuit it filed this week against Kia and Hyundai because of how easily their cars are stolen? Wait, go ahead and explain this and then I'm going to throw the flag.
2: Well, I can't wait to see how you throw the flag here. Cleveland uh, <laughs> Cleveland is arguing that the city has spent countless hours of police time and resources chasing around these stolen cars, all because the manufacturers cheaped out, they prioritized profits over public safety, and they failed to equip these vehicles with what is pretty standard anti-theft technology. This lawsuit was filed in U.S. District Court in California, and it's among several that have been filed there by cities across the country against these companies. The city is seeking reimbursement for the cost of the police time and police overtime, impound fees, and the the cost of damages to the city. Mayor Justin Bibbs says, yeah, this is a case about recouping money spent on these stolen vehicle cases, but more importantly, it's about standing with the consumer and demanding accountability. And the, the issue here is that These cars didn't come with an engine immobilizer, which made it really easy to hotwire them. Last year, thieves shared tips on how to steal these cars on YouTube. And as a result, from October through December, thieves stole more than 1,200 of them in the city. In December and January, there were nearly 900 more stolen. And the city and the suburbs have started handing out steering locks, but obviously that's not fully addressing the problem. And it's yet another expense that cities are incurring on account of of this design flaw but okay chris what do you think <laughs>
0: well let's let's start with one of the reasons they're doing it is to stand with the consumer if that were true whatever money they got back they would give to the consumer this is cleveland going for a <laughs> cash grab but look but think cleveland about this. but
2: cleveland right. i mean they're saying so, that they're putting their resources into chasing down these yeah, stolen cars so they right. they're not going to hand money back to
0: Have you talked to anybody who's had a car stolen? There is no investigation. They take a report, and it often takes hours to get it. There is nothing. Yeah, that's true. And then the cars get abandoned. They get towed to the impound Mm -hmm. lot where the city charges people way more than the cost of storing stuff in the impound lot. The city, I bet, is to the good in dollars because of this, that they're not losing money. I want to see the books because I'm just not buying it. I, mm-hmm. I mean, I've heard from so many people that are frustrated by the fact the city won't investigate it. What they do, you file your report. And a few weeks later, they list your car as unrecoverable. Nobody's done anything to try and help you out and, and bring people to justice. It's I, my bet is this is going to be a wash that, with the impound fees they get and the lack of work they do, this isn't going to cost the city <laughs> anything. And is this really the best priority for the city of Cleveland at this juncture in time?
1: I'm with you, Chris. I, I, I think it's just kind of a, an attention grabber and a, and a cash grab. I
0: agree. Yeah, I the the consumers have a really legitimate complaint against these car companies. Anybody that's had the difficulty of losing their car and and dealing with the the trauma of that the the other thing, and we got to look at this is there are some people in law enforcement saying that anecdotally. This trend might have reduced carjackings in the city because it's so easy to steal these cars. People don't need guns to roust people to get their cars. Uh, we'll have to look and see if carjacking charges and incidents are down because anybody who wants one of these cars can get it just by watching TikTok. Have the somebody did?
2: Have the manufacturers changed their? I mean, have they have they improved this? Have, has this design flaw been solved?
0: They. I, I just read what is it a week ago that. That they've started a recall to try and uh, put an adjustment in or remove whatever it is that that makes this easy to do, but they were pretty unresponsive for the most of the time, and they should recall every car. who would buy one? You know it's like who would buy a house in East Palestine right now? Who would buy one of these cars now with with knowing that these companies are not standing behind their their products mm-hmm. so I don't know. It's a a fascinating uh, case. I I don't remember any time before where a car was that easy to steal. You're listening to today in Ohio. What is the Ohio Senate's thinking in moving along a bill that would let 14 and 15 year old kids work until 9 p.m. all year round? Laura,
3: I got to say, i angry about this bill. The Senate apparently thinks it's going to solve Ohio's worker shortage by getting eighth graders to work late. And I feel like there are a lot better solutions out there that would also protect kids. Uh, The Senate seven Democrats voted against this bill, obviously overwhelmingly Republican, so it passed. But this would allow 14 to 15-year-olds to work between 7 and 9 p.m. any time of the year if they have permission from their parents or legal guardians. Until then, it was just the summer months that they're allowed to work that late. To be fair, they're not making any kids work. We're not talking about sweatshop labor. Their parents still have to approve it. But I just don't think we should be relying on kids in eighth and ninth grade to work this late. I mean, I don't I don't think these legislators' 14-year-olds are going to work. School well, should be their first priority. Yeah.
0: I'm going to push back on this a little bit. I uh, We talked months ago when I did a column about being a newspaper carrier when I was 11 and 12, and how I felt like that taught me a great deal of responsibility. It taught me how to interact with adults when I was knocking on their doors and they're trying to stiff me on the money. I had to be somewhere every morning, five thirty in the morning, six in the morning, to get them delivered. Any any kind of rain, and I feel like that put me ahead. That it taught me money responsibility. And I know that State Senator Jerry Serino, he said, "Yes, this is about helping with the labor shortage, but it's also about." helping parents who are trying to teach responsible behavior to their kids. It's up to you as the parent as to whether or not your kid does this. So, uh, you know, ostensibly you would have a conversation with your kid and figure out if it's a good fit. But I, you know, you're raising children now. Uh-huh. How do you teach them financial responsibility and what it means to have to be somewhere every day on your own with with something to do.
3: First of all, they're not going to get there on their own because they're fourteen. It's going to be me picking them up at nine thirty at night. But <laughs> which I just don't think this should be their first priority. And I had a job at fifteen. Okay, I was a lifeguard. I made four twenty five an hour. I cleaned toilets. I worked all summer. I did have a job in in high school working till nine o'clock, but that was my senior year. I just don't think that. I mean, they're talking about the labor shortage. And this is a a solution they come up with. I I just don't think this is where their focus should be. And I get it. We're not forcing these kids to work. I just, I don't understand this, this solution. And I I have to agree with a Democrat. I think, let me see who it was. Um, It was Kent Smith from Euclid who said there's a better solution out there 20% of stay at home moms would enter the workforce if they had childcare assistance that's where we need to be targeting our workforce shortages and i mean we know i'm going to be launching a childcare project so i'm i'm 100% with Ken Smith on this i don't think we should rely on on kids working late kids can work all they want i don't know how many 14 year olds in the state of ohio have jobs anyway
0: It was because of that that quote by him that I gave you this question. (laughs) (laughs) Layla, what do you think? You've got kids coming up toward that age.
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is not the solution to a workforce shortage. Uh, But... (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I, I have not thought about it yet in terms of my own children. They're 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 still pretty young. <laughs> I'm still trying to get them to fold their own laundry. I don't I don't see them working well, yes. till nine PM.
3: I'm with you. Right. Getting the trash taken out and <laughs> emptying the dishwasher is hard enough. But I would like to point out that the senators had to, they passed this non-binding resolution asking Congress to update the federal fair labor standard to allow fifteen and fourteen year olds to work later with their parents' permission because Right now, that's illegal under federal law. So you know how Ohio's, you know, Dave Yost is always suing over things the federal government is trying to do, saying it's illegal. Well, the law that the bill, the Senate just passed would not be legal under federal law.
0: So do you not trust parents to make the right decision with their own kids?
3: I think that we protect kids in the state and not every parent is a perfect parent. And I don't see the point in taking away this protection.
1: Well, see, I think the undercurrent here is, though, that, you know, because Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders just signed a bill into law that loosens restrictions for kids who work, saying that they have to apparently they have to verify that they're at least 16 years old. That was the old law, the new law. They don't have to do that. But then we had immigrant kids that were working in slaughterhouses. So I'm wondering if that's the real target here. I also feel like
2: maybe it's not a question of whether parents should be making the decision for their own kids, because if I have a 15, 14 year old and I don't want them to be working till 9 p.m., but their boss does, the boss has a right to then say, well, I'm not going to hire this 14 year old or I'm going to let this 14 year old go. And, you know, in, in place of some kid who is willing to work that late into the night.
3: Right. I agree. Because let's say you're working at McDonald's and now you've got to tell your boss, I'm sorry, my mom doesn't want me to work that right. that late. That's a lot harder than saying that's illegal. Right.
0: Okay. Great conversation. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Will Nopec be permitted to continue offering discounted power in communities that participate in its Energy Choice program? Lisa, there was some tough words in this case, but what's the verdict?
1: Yeah, NOPEC lives to fight another day. So the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio approved renewing NOPEC's certificate to do business in the state, but they were criticized for their decision to drop a half a million customers temporarily to save them money. PUCO Commissioner Dennis Dieter said that NOPEC's purchasing strategies put ratepayers at risk during price volatility, and there was a lack of transparency in their move. As you recall, last year, their customers under NOPEC were paying twice as much as the standard service offer so no peck temporarily push them off to the standard service offer saying they would take them back as soon as prices came back down. But PUCO, in this controversy had to prove that NOPEC was unfit and incapable of providing service, service to get their certification yanked. So the, NOPEC did make some changes. They've amended their user agreements. They hired an independent energy consultant to help them purchase electricity in the future. And there's a new rule aggregators like NOPEC must wait one year to re-enroll their customers if they drop them. NOPEC Executive Director Chuck Kuyper says he's pleased that allegations from for-profit suppliers that stood to gain from certificate denial were deemed unsubstantiated. And Dynagy was the wholesale supplier that would, you know, Took on these customers and granted it was a little bit of a surprise to them, but they complained that there was no proper notice, there was an unfair burden of added customers.
0: I I I was there was one PUCO member that really blasted them, called them all sorts of names, and said they're responsible and they should be serving the customer. I would argue that NOPEC served the customer. They realized mm-hmm. that we were costing them a lot of money, so we dropped them. I mean that that represented it. I I get that 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 caused some dysfunction. And so the state now wants to put in some rules that that mediate that a bit. But NOPEC was serving the best interests of its customers. And look, I'm not a fan of NOPEC. I I hate the opt-out rule. I hate the fact that I have to do something proactive to not be their customer. It annoys me every time I get it, because if you forget to do it, they suck you in and it's it just shouldn't be allowed. But they did the right thing here and they shouldn't get beat up for it.
1: I completely agree. I mean, their customers. It was it was the you know their customers that they had at heart when they did this, and it it was an unusual move. They they did move half a million customers onto standard service, but I don't know that there are any policies against that or regulating that.
0: Well, look, we've seen that NOPEC looks out for its customers. The PUCO looks out for the utilities. There's nobody on the state regulatory level that's looking out for the little guy. And Mike DeWine keeps appointing insiders to that board. It needs to be blown up and start over. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We talked a bit in Wednesday's episode about Cleveland City Council not giving the new Community Police Commission cash above and beyond what is called for in the charter. Some people are unhappy about that decision. Layla, who are they?
2: So just a recap here, that the charter amendment that voters approved requires the city to set aside a minimum amount of money for this community police commission, no less than $1 million, for, $1 million for operations and the equivalent of 0.5% of the police budget for grants that the commission has to distribute to community organizations that are focused on violence prevention and, and other initiatives like that. This year, that minimum amounts to about $2.1 million dollars. But during the budgeting process, Mayor Justin Bibb had suggested giving the commission an additional $224,000 to pay for an attorney to advise the group, a finance person to help distribute those grants, and salary costs for for other staffers. Then the commission asked council for an additional $18,000 beyond that request to help pay for things like research and community surveys. So during the budget reconciliation process, City Council... Pretty much rejected those requests and and settled on simply providing the level of funding that the charter requires. City council had other priorities for the extra money. They felt that the city could use it to address some infrastructure needs. They they want an arts program for kids, a few more staffers in the Department of Building and Housing, and including more b- building inspectors and some additional staffers in the Office of Equal Opportunity. And that really rankled a lot of folks who were involved in the effort to pass Issue Twenty Four. They see, you know, police reform as one of the city's highest priorities. And they basically said city council has largely been against issue 24 from the very beginning, and that depriving the commission of this additional funding was council's way of basically trying to ensure that the group fails. So the group can't hire the attorney they had planned for. They can't give pay raises to their staff, which they say are already paid on the low end of the city's pay scale. The commission members and leaders are arguing that by failing to give them the funding they requested, the city is is slapping voters in the face. Council president, though, Blaine Griffin, his response is, well, actually, we're funding the commission according to the charter requirement that voters approved. So we're giving voters exactly what they wanted. And I got (laughs) to say, I agree with him. I yeah. mean, if the framers of this charter amendment felt that they would need more money to adequately operate, they should have built it into the charter and asked voters. But maybe it occurred to them that that making this a more expensive venture for taxpayers might turn some voters off. And that makes this request for a significantly high percentage increase in funding seem a little bit like a bait-and-switch to me.
0: Yeah, I, I said mm-hmm. the same thing yesterday. Look, we were alarmed when this charter amendment was going through we we did endorse it but we were alarmed at the significant percentage of the this public safety budget that was automatically going that it seemed like a large sum of money with no real accountability on what it would be spent for and the voters signed off on that they said okay you get this much money i and they haven't even started yet and they're and they're already saying i want more go ahead lisa
1: no, no, I was just agreeing with you, Chris. It's like they just barely started. and they want to raise already, <laughs> you know, And this is I mean, you usually don't see scope creep until later into an an initiative. But this is scope creep at the outset,
0: well, and it's a percentage, right? So so as the the public safety budget increases, they will get their their cost of living. But I just I looked at this as a mad cash grab. And you don't want to see that. You don't want to see this thing. This thing has a very specific mission. Do the mission. Let's see how it works.
2: One thing has been, I've been thinking about the fact that, you know, they were supposed to have on their, on the commission, an attorney, remember a member of the commission was supposed to be an Mm -hmm. attorney and that was not, you know, the city did not appoint one, pardon me. And, um, and so I am wondering if this was to um, if the if the addition of the attorney, like a staff attorney, is supposed to kind of ameliorate that, and that might be why they're upset. Maybe they thought that you know because we didn't get a, we didn't have a, a member of our commission appointed who's an attorney, we were going to get the staff attorney, and now they, they don't have that that the benefit of someone with legal expertise at all. Um, so I, I get well, I see that. I mean they but they should have fought for that attorney. That is in the charter that's in the charter they should have said well, we need that that appointment
0: here's a thought subodh chandra helped write this he has made a boatload of money suing the city maybe he could do it pro bono <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know i want to say one other thing just because this is slightly off off the 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 course here, but Courtney's story mentioned that during council's negotiations, council is seeking and received $1.3 million extra for neighborhood infrastructure needs like street repaving. That's what they wanted that money for. And she wrote that the money is to be split equally among council's 17 members for use in their respective neighborhoods. Um th- didn't we completely overhaul the way street repaving is done in Cleveland? Yes.
0: Yeah, this is a re- return to form. Yeah, it's the city fund. decided yeah. that
2: letting council members pick which streets get the attention meant that some of the worst streets were being neglected, so they started using a more objective criteria for repaving. And yeah. Are we slowly sliding back into this? Yeah. I don't know, but I thought and that popped Sweeney's out Marty Sweeney's not me. even
0: on council. <laughs> 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 yeah, it sounds like a slush fund to me. Totally. All right. We got to move on. It's today in Ohio. Laura, how is Walgreens responding to Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost's demand that the pharmacy company not dispense the abortion pill in Ohio?
3: well they're kowtowing to his demands here i called laura hancock a reporter on this who writes about abortion with a lot of authority and knows the ins and outs and was basically like okay give me the scoop because the pill is legal in ohio right now and i also asked her how to pronounce (laughs) (laughs) the i did i did i had it practiced yesterday, mithipristone so she said walgreens never gave a reason per se they decided not to sell the drugs in 20 states where these attorneys general had written them a letter. So it's kind of assumed that the the attorneys general intimidated the company. They don't want to get into a legal battle, regardless of their rights right now in the state, where you can get an abortion up to about 22 weeks because the heartbeat bill is on hold. And the FDA used to require this drug to be dispensed at a clinic. They say it can be dispensed at a pharmacy They also think it could be mailed. Ohio says that's against the law, against federal law. So Walgreens will not be doing that. Also, it's against the law in Ohio to use telemedicine for an abortion, even though that part of the law is being challenged. So technically, you can go to a clinic. You can get it there. You can take the drug. And about half of Ohio abortions use use a pill to, uh, to have an abortion. But right now, you won't be able to go to Walgreens. We don't know about CVS or any other pharmacy.
0: The only thing that's going to clear this up is getting that amendment passed that just sets it straight what mm-hmm. what people have a right to in Ohio because it's a mess right now. What the Supreme Court did was create patchwork upon, upon patchwork of of rules and regulations, right. and, it, and it's going to be confusing until unless that amendment, especially
3: gets with passed. all the legal battles, right? We have laws that are not in taking effect, and. I, you know if you were a young a, a woman who wanted to have an abortion it would be very complicated to feel like you understood what the rules are right now
0: I Is guess anybody, that's why
3: those organizations are so much in the business of providing information
0: it's early but has anybody seen petition signature gatherers yet for the amendment
3: no no no, no. I, I wonder either. if they'll be out at the St Patrick's Day parade
0: ooh I don't know that <laughs> would be a lot an of interesting on the streets that would be an interesting juxtaposition It's today in Ohio. Norfolk Southern announced a proactive step this week aimed at mitigating disasters resulting from future train wrecks. Lisa, they've been reactive up till now, but this is actually taking a step into the future. What are they going to do?
1: Yeah, Norfolk Southern will be establishing a regional training center somewhere in Ohio for first responders, and this would be for first responders in Ohio, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. They will also be expanding their Traveling Operation Awareness and Response Program. It will be making four stops in Ohio this year among the 12 stops they're doing for 2023. This is like a rolling... uh classroom. They have a locomotive, they have tank cars, and then rolling classrooms for hands-on training for first responders. They also have an Ask Rail mobile app that identifies rail shipments that are coming through town for first responders. And then training classes for this new center will begin before the center is built. So they're going to start these classes at their Bellevue, Ohio, rail yard until the permanent location is identified and and the building is built. Norfolk Southern President and CEO Alan Shaw says this is a direct result of his talks with Governor Mike DeWine and other leaders in Ohio to support community first responders.
0: Why wouldn't they put that in East Palestine to give them some financial help because things are so dire there? It seems like that would be a natural way to invest in that community.
1: Well, my guess is it would be built in eastern Ohio because, you know, they're including West Virginia and Pennsylvania in this training. So, I would think it would be in northeast or east Ohio.
0: Okay. You are listening to Today in Ohio. A bunch of new data has been released that adds perspective to Ohio's devastating opioid problems. Layla, what does it show?
2: Well, in 2020, Ohio had... The third highest number of overdose deaths of any state and the third highest overdose death rate. So this new online dashboard that the state unveiled this week was created to help local organizations respond to that ongoing crisis. And and it provides some important information broken down by trends in, in each county, drug time period, and treatment medication. The first thing you might notice is that the number of deaths has been trending upward just about everywhere. In Ohio, 5,210 people died of a drug overdose in 2021. That's up almost 27% from the 4,107 people who died of an overdose in uh, the state two years earlier. And the number of instances of first responders administering the anti-opioid overdose drug naloxone to revive those who have overdosed continues to increase year over year. In Cuyahoga County specifically, the numbers have also gone up over a period of several years. They increased from 459 in 2018 to 580 in 2021. So the hope is really that this information will help those on the front lines of this crisis better deploy resources to the communities that most need it.
0: You do wonder whether the mental health strains caused by the pandemic are to blame for a large part of those increases. 2018 was pre-pandemic. 2020 was was the full bore of that first year where everybody was traumatized by what happened. And you just wonder if people turned more to drugs to relieve the pain. I,
2: I certainly think that is true. I mean, plus, think of all the isolation that people experienced during lockdown mm-hmm. time. And, and uh, you know, I'm sure that, that, I mean, also people were, we're delaying and, and, and putting off treatment for, for things. And, um, you know, it just, this, this was not as high a priority as, as dealing with the pandemic. And I think it just really exacerbated the problem.
0: Yeah. It's today in Ohio. Great conversations today. Thank you very much. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back tomorrow. I think talking about the verdict in the Larry Householder case, maybe not.